Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. But hey, investigators, we've kept it pretty linear in the last weeks as we have worked our way through the story of Sonny and Klaus von Bülow. This week, we're going to wind it down with the verdict and the aftermath and giving Sonny von Bülow through Dominic Dunn the last word. Let's investigate. Back in the last episode, we left with Klaus von Bülow making a rude finger gesture and the jury coming in. I'm going to let Dominic Dunn from Fatal Charm pick it up from here. On Monday morning, June 10th, the jury, after deliberating four days, came in with a verdict of not guilty. In his moment of victory, Von Bülow bypassed the embrace and kiss offered him by Mrs. Reynolds, who was wearing the same blue party dress she had worn at her granddaughter's christening, and gave her a peck on the cheek. Then he raced to a telephone to call Cosima. Von Bülow walked out of the Biltmore Plaza Hotel for the last time, waving to his admirers, and began the three-and-a-half-hour drive back to 960 Fifth Avenue. His dark and spacious place in social history was assured. Dunn will continue in the second part of Fatal Charm. He writes a little bit more about the verdict. The proceedings were swift. The verdict was predictably not guilty on both charges. Von Bülow bowed his head for an instant and blinked back a tear. Then he and his lawyer, Thomas Puccio, nodded to each other without emotion. The courtroom was strangely mute despite a few cheers from elderly closets in the back of the room. Very little of the ecstasy that accompanies a vindication was present, except in the histrionics of Mrs. Reynolds, whose moment had finally come, and she played it to the hilt. Flanked by two of her favorite reporters, and directly in line with the television camera, she raised her diamond-ringed fingers to her diamond-earringed ears and wept. During the triumphant press conference after the trial, Von Bülow, surrounded by seven lawyers, glowing with the flush of victory, returned to his old arrogance as he fielded questions from media representatives he no longer needed to court. Following a champagne visit with the jury that had acquitted him, he and Mrs. Reynolds returned to New York. Even in his moment of victory, dramatic rumors preceded his arrival. At Mortimer's restaurant, a French visitor said that if Klaus had been found guilty, there was a plan to spirit him out of the country on the private jet of a vastly rich Texan. If I took you down to our beach and you started asking people, 200 of us who have dinner and swim and play golf together, you would find nearly everybody will say that he did it says Mrs. John Slocum, a member of Newport Society, whose pedigree goes back 12 generations, told a reporter a week before Von Bülow was acquitted. And I'll tell you something else, she added. People are afraid of Klaus. 
They probably should be. He is a cold-blooded snake, and my apologies to the snake. High society has all kinds of feelings about the acquittal. Dominic Dunn will continue writing from Fatal Charm. A few days after the trial, I went to Newport to check out the scene and found the battle lines between the pro and anti-Vombulo factions remained drawn and seemed possibly even fiercer than ever. On the front page of the Newport Daily News, Mrs. Slocum crossed words with Mrs. John Nicholas Brown, who had been Von Bulow's staunchest defender in Newport society from the beginning, in their respective damnation and praise of Judge Grand and the verdict. In the same article, Mrs. Claiborne Pell, the wife of Senator Pell of Rhode Island, says she was quote-unquote delighted that Von Bulow had walked from the courthouse a free man, while Hugh D. Auchincloss, the stepbrother of Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, who had once written a letter in Von Bulow's behalf to help him gain membership in the Knickerbocker Club, had harsh words for the verdict, the judge, and his former friend. At the exclusive Clambake Club, Russell Aitken, the widower of Sonny Von Bulow's mother, Annie Laurie Aitken, stared ahead stone-faced, as Mr. and Mrs. John Winslow, who had once said the Aikens would not be welcome at Bailey's Beach if Klaus were acquitted, were seated nearby with their party. The Winslows were equally stone-faced. Everything in this whole story has gone down with so much press attention. Even after the verdict, people are not done seeking their time in the headlines. Dunn continues writing, while Von Bulow saved himself for an exclusive with Barbara Walters on 2020, his mistress did a saturation booking on the television shows. Back in Providence, Judge Grand defended herself against a barrage of criticism that she had let a guilty man walk free. I didn't help Klaus beat rap, went one headline. Out in Seattle, Jenny Bulow, the elderly widow of Fritz Bulow, Klaus von Bülow's long-dead maternal grandfather, from whom he acquired his name when he changed it from Borberg, made no secret of her dissatisfaction with both the judge and the verdict. In New York, von Bülow announced that he would visit Sonny at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center for the first time in four years as a gesture of his continuing love for her. Later, seated in the library of his wife's Fifth Avenue apartment, he met with Barbara Walters, as he had met with her at the conclusion of his first trial. He talked about his desire to go back to work. I was never going to divorce Sonny because of any other woman, he told her. I was going to divorce Sonny because she didn't tolerate my work. At the end of the interview, Miss Walters announced that Von Bulow would soon be leaving for England to begin work for Paul Getty Jr., the son of his former boss. The hubbub after the verdict will quelch a little bit, and then Klaus and Andrea go dark, or at least more reclusive than they have been thus far. Dunn continues writing, While Von Bulow waited for his passport to be returned, he and Mrs. Reynolds became, for them at least, almost socially invisible. They lunched quietly at Le Cirque, 
with their staunch ally Alice Mason, the New York realtor and hostess. On another occasion, Mrs. Reynolds entertained two members of the press at lunch at the Four Seasons. They attended a coming-out party given in honor of two daughters of the family with whom Cosima had lived during the first trial. For some reason, they did not once venture into Mortimer's, the Upper East Side restaurant that had become their favorite haunt between trials. Mrs. Reynolds told friends that she was writing a miniseries based on the trial. Von Bulow made plans with his publisher for his autobiography and, according to one friend, made arrangements for a facelift. Together, they visited the Livingston Manor House of Mrs. Reynolds's about-to-be former husband, Sheldon Reynolds, to look at the trees she had planted and pick up clothes she had left there. A witness to the scene reported that Von Bulow's attitude to Mrs. Reynolds was chilly. The participants began to scatter. Maria Schralhammer, after 28 years of service with Sonny Crawford von Ausberg von Bülow and her children, retired and returned to Germany the day after the verdict. Cosima von Bülow, 18, threw herself into the hectic whirl of a summer of debutante parties. Alexander von Ausberg returned to his job in the retirement division of E.F. Hutton. Alla Knessel, pregnant with her second child, began to work on a documentary film about victims of homicide. Together, Alla and Alexander, through the chemical bank which handles the fortunes of their mother and grandmother, are in the process of establishing two major foundations. One will provide funds for the solace of the families of homicide victims and for changes in legislation to allow victims' rights to equate with the rights of criminals. A second foundation, commemorating both their parents, will be for medical research in the field of comas. G. Morris Gurley, the bank officer who was not allowed to testify at the trial, is in charge of overseeing the foundations. Von Bülow did not visit his wife at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center. Two weeks after the acquittal, his passport was returned to him, and for the first time in five years he was free to travel abroad. The next day, he and Mrs. Reynolds left New York. They did not fly first class. He stopped in London to visit friends. Mrs. Reynolds, after a one-day stopover in London, went on to Geneva to visit her father. A few days later, they rendezvoused at the Grand Hotel de la Paz in the Italian spa of Montecanini, Terme. Friends, you know it's going to happen. It does not take long for Klaus von Bülow to leave his mistress and most fervent defender, Andrea Reynolds. Andrea is out once Klaus von Bülow relocates to London permanently. He sets up in a flat near Harrods, and Klaus von Bülow is off to live his whole new life acquitted. I guess you do get what your mistress pays for. Andrea Reynolds, after all of this, will continue to have some more adventures, but ultimately suffers a bad end. Klaus splits with Andrea when in London. Andrea will remarry in 1989. Oddly enough, in 1991, Andrea Reynolds would interview Saddam Hussein before the Gulf War. 
Andrea's next husband and she run a bed and breakfast in the Catskills for a long time, really up until her husband's death in 2012. Then Andrea Reynolds really falls on hard times, so hard that she will go to see Klaus von Bülow and Cosima in London in 2014, begging for their help. Klaus and Cosima refuse. By 2014, Andrea Reynolds had been abandoned by everyone. She had never become an American citizen, and by the end of her life, doesn't have much money. She is living in a place with no heat. She sleeps on the kitchen floor in front of her gas oven with her dogs. Most of any money she does have was spent on wine, cigarettes, and dog food. The bed and breakfast was foreclosed upon and auctioned. She will pass away in 2016 at the age of 81 in that bed and breakfast before she can be evicted from the property. Alexandra Isles, Klaus's previous mistress, her story a little bit happier. Alexandra Isles will go on to marry again and goes on to make quite a name for herself as a filmmaker. Alexandra Isles will produce and direct a film called The Power of Conscience. This film is made almost as a love letter to Alexandra's father, the hero of the Dutch resistance, Count Adam Moltke. That is most certainly a tribute to her father, the work he did within the Dutch resistance in World War II, and lives as a lasting reminder to history. Really good stuff, Alexandra Isles. As for Alan Dershowitz, he's interviewed after the second trial, and Dershowitz says, without money, you cannot get justice. <laughs> oh, Dominic Dunn will meet Alan Dershowitz again in future investigations. Let's talk about what happens after the verdict and the financial aspect and how it all shakes down. What happens with all of the legal stuff? In May of 1994, the year before Klaus's second trial, Annie Laurie Aitken, grandmother to all three of Sonny's children, passed away. In 1994, Cosima filed suit against her family members, suing for a piece of Annie Laurie Aitken's estate. Annie Laurie cut Cosima out of her will, for supporting Klaus von Bülow. It is 10 days after the acquittal of Klaus in 1985 that Alla and Alexander file civil suit against Klaus von Bülow for $56 million. So we have two court cases working through the system. Between these two court cases, they do come to resolve together. It all shakes down like this. Alla and Alexander agree to toss the civil suit in return for some agreements from Klaus. In late December 1987, Klaus von Bülow agrees to renounce any claim on Sonny's fortune and divorce Sonny as well, which he will in 1988. In return for that civil suit being tossed, Klaus von Bülow also agrees never to make any money from the case or speak about the case publicly. Also, last condition, Klaus needs to get out of the country. Don't go away mad, Klaus. 
just go away. Now, there's a lot of conditions in that that the kids get. What does Klaus von Bülow want in return for this? Easy peasy, just one thing. He wants Cosima written back into the will of Annie Laurie Aitken, her grandmother. Cosima will be reinstated with her share of her grandmother's estate, equal to that of Alla and Alexander. This estate at the time was about $110 million, so this is not an insignificant chunk of change. All of that happens in 1987-1988. In 1988, Clarendon Court is sold for $4.2 million. There is an auction that same year of the contents of the home, including paintings, furniture, silver, and porcelains. The auction of the contents of Clarendon Court will fetch another $11.5 million. In 1989, with her $30 million intact from her grandmother, Annie Laurie Aitken's estate, Cosima will relocate to London, joining her father upon her graduation from Brown University. Klaus von Bülow in London, believe it or not, has a job as the film critic for the Catholic Times. You just can't make it up. Our man Nick will say Klaus von Bülow is guilty as sin, adding, he hates me a lot the way I wrote about him. Klaus von Bülow passes away on May 25th, 2019 at the age of 92. Those are most of the updates that happened in the few years post-trial. Now is a fantastic time to take a break, hear from our sponsors, and when we come back, we're going to give Dominic Dunn the last words in this arc on behalf of Sonny Von Bulow. Back in a moment. There really is no place more fitting to finish the story of Sonny Von Bulow, this American heiress, than with Dominic Dunn. I'm going to give him the last word for this arc of episodes from his piece titled Sunny Memories, published in Vanity Fair in January 2009 after the passing of Sonny Von Bulow. Certainly with 24 years passing since the second trial, Dominic Dunn will recall for newer generations the facts and details of the case. This is added in and I believe lends to just some of the genius of Dominic Dunn This piece is very intimate in nature. It is written at the time of Sonny's passing. From our man Nick in Sonny Memories, he writes, the subhead reads, 28 years after she slipped into a coma in her Newport mansion, Sonny Von Bulow died at a nursing home in New York City. The author attends her memorial service, speaks with her children, and remembers Klaus Von Bulow's trials for attempted murder. Mummy just died, Olivan Ausberg Isham called me early on Saturday morning, December 6th, to tell me that her mother, the famous Sonny Von Bulow, whose tragic fate of lying in a coma for 28 years will go down as one of the most sensational stories in the annals of American and international high society, had died. It was brand new news, even the media didn't know yet. There had been no warning from the Mary Manning Walsh nursing home in New York City that Sonny was failing or looking bad. 
She had been deep in her coma one minute, and the next she was dead. Allah and her brother Alexander, a princess and a prince from Sonny's first marriage to a dashing Austrian playboy named Prince Alfie von Ausberg, wanted to have a proper obituary in the New York Times before the papers printed the lurid stories of the beautiful but unhappy woman whose second husband, the infamous Klaus von Bülow, went on trial twice for attempting to kill her with insulin injections. Von Bülow was found guilty in the first trial and sentenced to 30 years in prison. That verdict was overturned on an appeal led by Alan Dershowitz of Harvard, and in a controversial reversal, he was acquitted in the second trial. There was no sense of, thank God it's finally over for us, in Allah's voice. There was grief. Sonny Von Bülow's children genuinely adored their mother, and remained, along with their own children, regular visitors to the comatose Sonny, who lay for years in a police-guarded room at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. Her port-halt sheets were on her hospital bed. Several paintings from her New York apartment hung on her hospital room's walls. Manicurists and hairdressers tended to her nails and blonde hair. She was like Sleeping Beauty. I covered the second trial, one of the first trials to be televised gavel to gavel for Vanity Fair. The Von Bülow scandal and the two trials were front-page news in the 1980s. Through it all, Allah and Alexander were stalwart and valiant supporters of their mother. We became friends and stayed friends through the years. I have never met Sonny's daughter by Von Bülow, Cosima Von Bülow Pavancelli, who, rightly for her, remained loyal and loving to her father. I took sides. I spent the night at Clarendon Court, the magnificent Newport mansion where Sonny went into her coma. I was never impartial in my own feelings. I believed Allah and Alex. I disbelieved Klaus Von Bülow. Bad feelings still exist between us. Only a week before Sonny died, an English friend emailed me an item from Richard Kay's gossip column in the Daily Mail. Party-going socialite Klaus von Bülow may have put his acquittal for his wife Sonny's attempted murder behind him as he flits from one smart address to another, but he has not forgotten about it. Six weeks ago, von Bülow had his radar on full when he spotted writer Dominic Dunn at society figure Nikki Halsam's glamorous London party. Dunn wrote a series of brilliant dispatches about the trial for Vanity Fair. The patrician Von Bülow never forgave him and deliberately snubbed Dominic when the three of us came face to face. After years of estrangement since the trials, Sonny's three children have become close again, as they were before the scandal although the subject that has dominated the lives of all three for 28 years is never alluded to by either side. In haste, before the media got wind of it, a funeral was arranged at St. Mary's Episcopal Church near Newport, where Alexander von Ausberg maintains a summer home. Eleven members of the family attended. There were no eulogies. There were hymns. Grandchildren read passages from the Bible. One family member told me Sonny would have been so proud of them. 
Police officers saluted Sonny's hearse as it passed intersections on the drive to the cemetery where Sonny was buried next to her mother. I have such admiration for Allah and Alexander. They are Sonny's legacy. They are responsible and caring people who lived through very public, difficult times during the trials. They became advocates for victims' rights, and 24 years ago, when they were still very young, they founded the organization now known as the National Center for Victims of Crime. For years, I was a member of the board. They also started a foundation for the study of comas. Before he died, their father was in a coma for many years, following an automobile crash in Austria. Sonny was often portrayed by the defense and portrayed again on film by the brilliant Glenn Close as a drug-taking drunk. She was a first-rate mother. Kids don't turn out as hers did by accident. On January 14th, Alla, Alex, and Cosima gave a memorial service for their mother in New York at the Brick Presbyterian Church on Park Avenue and 92nd Street, the same church where Sonny married Klaus. Considering that no one had seen Sonny in 28 years, it was nice that the lovely church was almost full. There were nurses and nuns and old, quiet, rich friends of hers. There were hymns in which everyone participated, beautiful music and choral singing, a very classy minister, readings by grandchildren, and eulogies by Alexander and Isabel Glover, Sonny's best friend, since boarding school days at St. Timothy's. Alex spoke so beautifully about his mother. He mentioned her perfect taste, her love of decorating her houses, her secret desire to be an astronaut, and her love of her four yellow Labradors. The dogs worshipped my mother, he said. There was not a single reference, either at the church or at the reception that followed, to the terrible event that changed all of their lives forever. The reception was held in the Georgian Suite, the private dining room of 960 Fifth Avenue, one of the great buildings of New York, where Sonny and Klaus lived and Alla, Alexander, and Cosima grew up. There was something very Proustian about it. Like the Duchess of Guaramontes's ball, everyone had gotten old. People who hadn't seen each other for years met up again. Lots of gray and white hair. Maids and waiters passed cucumber sandwiches and champagne. It was elegant. It was loving. There was a sensibility from a different era. Sonny would have been very proud of her children. And I believe that to be true. Sonny's children are a testament to her and carry on their work for justice for victims to this day. I could think of no better place, investigators, to end the saga of Sonny and Klaus von Bülow than with that piece from our man Nick. Thank you so much for joining me for this arc and your support in all the ways, for telling your friends about Done and Done, for your kind emails, your ratings, your reviews, as well as your support on patreon.com slash done and done. That is going to be your go-to place for early and ad-free episodes, 
as well as bonus episodes and our book club too. Thank you again for spending your time with me today and until we meet again on our next Dunday. Stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.